Well, then we are going to turn back to Philippians. So if you can open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. As most of you will hopefully remember, we started a series in uh, Philippians beginning around Christmas time or just before Christmas. Uh, and we've commenced it since then uh, in, early, in early January. And here we find the Apostle Paul in prison. He's in chains. He's locked up with no certainty of release for the crime of preaching the gospel. And yet what we've already seen is that this is a man who is in prison, in chains, and yet he is still rejoicing. He's still praising God. He's still thanking God. He's still uh, offering up uh, praise to him for all that he has done and continues to do. And before Christmas, we looked at chapter 1 and verses 1 to 11. And we saw there how Paul rejoices at the the partnership that he has with the Philippian church, this local body of believers. It's an enduring partnership, a serious partnership. He takes it seriously to partner with other churches. We saw the prayers that he has from them and the prayers that he has for them. And then finally, we observed the perseverance Uh, that he rejoices in the perseverance of the saints, that great doctrine, knowing that once you've become a Christian, God will allow you and enable you to finish uh, till the end. And then last month we saw Paul acknowledging how his imprisonment actually served to advance the gospel. And he highlights a few things about the advance of the gospel. He highlights the providence of God. He highlights the boldness of Christians as a result. And Paul rejoices that the proclamation of the gospel continues. It goes on. It continues uh, to flow. People continue to see the Lord Jesus Christ and to know him savingly. And so we've looked at two large chunks, which has meant that the sermons have been a little longer. And sorry about that. Um, I got uh, reminded of that by my little brother who likes to tune in. Um, So you've got him to thank if it's shorter tonight. (laughs) Uh, But today we're going to slow right down. Okay, we're going to slow right down and look at just two verses. Okay, verses 19 and verse 20. So let's read those quickly together. In fact, let's pick up from verse 18. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now here Paul is really getting into the flow of his letter. He's continuing to talk about rejoicing. You see that right there at the verse, uh, end of verse uh, 18. And he starts to explain why he is rejoicing uh, as well. He's rejoicing even though he's in a period and a time of waiting. Paul is essentially saying here that it is possible for a Christian to be waiting on things and expecting things that they don't have and find joy in those moments of waiting. I don't suppose there's many of us here this evening who can honestly say that we enjoy waiting or being forced to exercise patience. Maybe it's that waiting for those dreaded exam results, or maybe it's waiting for for medical results, the results of some sort of uh, test you've had, or waiting for food in a restaurant when you're really hungry, or maybe it's waiting for that job interview or that big pitch 
Uh, or maybe it's when you're waiting in a very frustrating experience. Maybe you're stuck in traffic or stuck behind that annoyingly slow learner driver. Uh, or maybe it's that delayed flight or delayed train home uh, that you're waiting for. Waiting is not something we as a society do very well, is it? That's why we have fast food and fast fashion. That's why the London Underground runs every two minutes, or should do at least. That's why we have finance options for pretty much everything you want to buy. They say to you, you can buy now, you can, you can get it now, and then you can pay for it later. You can commit to something now uh, and think about the, the result or the impact of that commitment later on down the line. And this has breeded a, a whole culture of indecision in our lives. We don't really know what we want to do. We often don't know uh, where we want to go in our lives. And so we, we maybe commit or flirt with the idea of something and, and then never actually follow through with it. And the root cause of that indecision, the root cause uh, of all of these things is our problem of not wanting to wait or be patient you don't see the benefits of something straight away, simply throw it away. That's what culture tells you today. That's what society tells you today. But this is not the biblical pattern. It's often the case that God will make us wait to teach us patience and endurance, and that is certainly what the Apostle Paul is identifying here. He's waiting. He's stuck in jail. He's limited in what he can do and where he can move. And you see, Paul was a man who had mastered the art and the ability to rejoice in every situation, in every circumstance, and to find reason to rest in the comfort that Christ gives. And therefore, as he will later go on, uh, later on in this letter, to say that he can be content in all things. So in these two little verses that we're going to look at this evening, at first glance, it doesn't appear like there's, there's much of note Largely, it would seem that Paul is just building up to a very powerful and impactful part of this letter that you'll see in verse 21, which we'll look at next time. So it would be really easy for us to brush past this and to not give these verses much attention at all. But if we did that, we would miss out on an opportunity to explore the theology behind waiting on God and the theology behind uh, waiting for God to act, and, and, and actually how Paul interprets his own season uh, of waiting. Maybe some of you are waiting today. Maybe there's something that you don't have that you really desire uh, that you are waiting for. And for some reason, God has said for now, no. God has said for now, wait. So we're going to explore tonight what it means to wait on God why we wait on God, the promises that are made to us in those seasons of waiting, and how ultimately our lives and those particular periods and seasons point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's our title for your notes if you want one today, Paul's Joyful Wait. He's still rejoicing. There, he, there it is in, at the end of verse 18. I rejoice and yes, I will rejoice. And for us to explore uh, this theme together, I want you to notice three things that Paul highlights. He highlights, first of all, the promise of deliverance. He highlights again, we've seen this before, boldness in waiting. And thirdly and finally, he highlights the magnification of Christ. It rolls off the tongue, that one, doesn't it? The magnification of Christ. So let's notice, firstly, the promise of deliverance. And this is seen primarily in verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You see it there, 
This will turn out for my salvation. Now, this word salvation uh, is not meaning his eternal salvation from sin in this particular context. We know at this point he is writing as a believer, someone who has already received salvation. So what he is really referring to here when he says salvation is the idea that he is going to be saved from his current circumstances. He's in prison at the moment. He is locked up, unable to serve God in the way that he would like. And yet he knows, he has certainty that there will be a time where he receives final and ultimate salvation from that situation. Other translations call it deliverance. And that, that's helpful for us to get a, really un, a real understanding of, of what Paul is saying there. That he knows that one day he will be delivered from this situation. And there he says it in verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation. For I know. There is a sense of true certainty and conviction about Paul's words here. He knows that he will be delivered from this imprisonment. He doesn't know how or when, but he knows that he will be released at some point or will be freed at some point. And that may even be because of his death. That may be because he dies that he is freed from this, this situation. And in the same sense as Christians, when we look down the barrel of trials, we too can look at uncertainty and look at difficulty with certainty and with conviction that one day we too will be rescued. As the hymn writer puts it, when faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. Now, this may happen in your life. This may happen in your death. If you look right at the end of verse 20, in my body, whether by life or by death. So there's a possibility that those trials that you go through, those pains you may go through, you may be required to, to hold on to them for a little while longer. But there will come a time when you will be delivered. I don't know. I promised myself I wouldn't talk about football today, but here we go. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember the FA Cup final of 2019. It was Manchester City, no surprise to anyone, and Watford. Have we got any Watford fans in the, in the room? We have. Have we got a Watford fan? Second, Second team, that'll do. So we've got, we've got one Watford fan in, in the house, that's good. And Watford started really well in the FA Cup final of, of 2019. Everyone was beginning to think they might actually get somewhere with this, and everyone apart from one half of Manchester was cheering them on. Uh, and then by the 70th minute of the game, they were 4-0 down. Manchester City ended, winning the game, ended up winning the game 6-0. By the time the fourth goal went in, there wasn't a football fan on the planet, not even the most optimistic Watford fan, who would say anything other than Man City have won this game. They pretty much already won by that 70th minute goal, but technically they had not been crowned champions yet. They were waiting for the final whistle to come for the celebrations and for them to be crowned as champions. And in a way, that's the same for us as Christians, isn't it? You see, we are already the victors. We have already won, and yet we are waiting for that final moment, that glorious moment when passing through the gates of pearly splendor, victors, we rest with thee through endless days. We've already won, we're already victors, but the battle goes on. But where does Paul find his confidence that what has happened to him will end in his deliverance and his salvation? Two things, both in verse 19. See, firstly, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation 
through your prayer, through your prayers. Prayers of the local church at Philippi are part of the basis of his confidence. You see, the prayers of a local church are so important and so vital. The Apostle Paul is reassured by the support of the local church. So what a gift then that the local church is to us. It is a gift to us. It is a present to God, uh, from God to us. But it is not just a gift for us. It is a gift for missionaries. How encouraging this must be to be a missionary, to hear reports of how churches around the world are praying for you and supporting you. What a gift is, therefore, the church is to those persecuted Christians, those suffering and going through pain at the hands of people who hate the name of Christ. And they know we're praying for them. What an encouragement. So how important then prayer is to the church. Prayer is the thing that the church stands and or falls upon. It is the powerhouse of the church. Without prayer, a church is ineffective. Without prayer, a church cannot do anything. You see, we talk a lot about revival. We love to hear stories about revival and read books about revival and say how much we long for revival, not realising it starts with us. It starts with us and a revival in our own hearts, praying and seeking God in prayer, reading his word and longing to come before the scriptures, longing to hear his word preached. You see, we could start a revolution this week. If every person in this room committed to praying for just half an hour a day. That's not a huge requirement when you think about how many hours you have in a day. What revival could come from that? What blessing we might see from that? What wondrous works God may do through that? And you see, even when in prison, even when physically removed from any one body of believers... Paul is still seen to be affirming the centrality of the local church by penning this letter. He's written this to a local church. He emphasises the importance of the local church. So can I encourage you then this evening to take the local church seriously. Take it seriously in your service for it. Those things that you do in the church, and I hope you do. Do them with a true sense of conviction. Take the prayer times that you have with the local church seriously as opportunities to get before God with your brothers and sisters. Take it seriously in the commitment that you have for it and maintaining that commitment, not just when you're here, but when you're away as well. Uh, one, one thing I really admire Uh, my parents for us no matter where in the world we were when we were on holiday we always tried our very best to find a church even if we didn't know the language of that church it's a good principle to remember and when stuck in a period of waiting when he doesn't know what's going on paul devotes himself to prayer and relies on the prayers of others can i just say this to you tonight there are people in your life that need your prayers there are people in your life who need you to be a prayerful person that need you to be somebody who constantly gets in front of God and lifts your voice to him and cries out to him 
Paul devotes himself completely to prayer and to God's sovereign care. That's the first thing. And then we see how he says in, in the second part of verse 19, or the final part of verse 19, uh, that he, he knows it will work out for his salvation through prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Hmm. So an interesting phrase that he uses here, and he uses it a few times in his letters, to emphasize the very special relationship between God the Holy Spirit and God the Son. Now, this is uh, interesting to, to speak about because as I was reading, I found out that there was a, a huge split about a thousand years ago where everybody in the church disagreed about this. Uh, so I don't want to do anything like that tonight. Um, but essentially what this is... Uh, uh, what this is telling us is that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son with one express role, to speak about Jesus. That is the role of the Holy Spirit, to speak about Christ, to glorify and honour Jesus in our lives, to point us towards him, to tell us to go away from sin. Those moments when you're tempted to sin and there's that voice in your head saying, no, I know I shouldn't do that. That is the work of the Holy Spirit pointing you towards Christ. And so that is the work of the, the Spirit of Jesus. There's further debate about how this, this term, the Spirit of Jesus, may also refer to an apostolic authority especially given to Paul and other apostles for his, in, for his task. This spirit of Jesus was given to them specially to help them endure trials and hardship and suffering and pain. But regardless of that debate, Paul entrusts himself and commits himself totally to his creator and totally to God's sovereign care. And so do we. That's exactly what we do too. We take content what he has, he has said, knowing that his hands can turn my griefs away and patiently I await his day. He knows that God is working these trials out for his deliverance. He knows these trials are there for God to deliver him from them. Hang on a minute, you might say. God is keeping a trial in Paul's way or putting a trial in Paul's way so that he can be delivered. That makes no sense. But the idea that we have to remember here is that victory will taste so much sweeter for those of us who have suffered much and tasted much bitterness. You see how Jesus tells us in John chapter 16 and verse 20 that sorrow will be turned to joy. And that's the work that he started uh, in his first advent, it's the work that he will finish in his second. Sorrow turned to joy. And how much greater our joy will be after we have waited patiently on God. How much, therefore, it is an encouragement to us to keep on going and keep on striving and keep on pressing on. How much courage we must have in light of the final hope that we have in Christ. That there will come a day where we are delivered. There will come a day where we are finally and truly saved from, from, from sin itself. Is that that great reminder that we have been already saved from sin's curse? We are being saved from sin's power. And there will come a day where we are saved from sin's very presence itself. And so therefore we must have courage. We must have boldness. And that's why I want you to notice secondly... For your, note, for your notes, the boldness in waiting. Look at verse 20 now. According to my earnest expectation and hope 
that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I shall not be ashamed, but that with all boldness. Other translations might put this as with all courage, and they're both useful words for us. We have to be courageous for God. You see, in times of waiting, in times where perhaps it doesn't seem like God is actually doing very much in our lives, we are commanded to be bold, we are commanded to be courageous in our faith. We are commanded to continue striving for the gospel. This means not just giving up. This means not just uh, getting tired at the first sign of trouble. This means uh, continuing to strive for him. And so I ask you, in our fight against temptation and sin, are you courageous? Are you bold? Or are you someone who continually bows to pressure and gives in, not wanting to be seen as somebody different to the world? Are you bold in the decisions you must make about your own life, accepting that there may well be things that you have to give up in fulfilment of God's call in your life. That's one of the most difficult things uh, for, for so many people to get their heads around. Yes, I want to serve God in that capacity, or I want to do that for God, but I just cannot give up that thing. Are you bold in your evangelism personally? Are you bold and courageous in the way you communicate the gospel to other people? Do people know where you are tonight? Are the people you see tomorrow going to know where you were tonight? Because the Apostle Paul tells us that he will be in no way ashamed. You see that they're according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. He is unashamed. He has an unapologetic desire for the gospel to advance. He rejoices in it. He praises God for it. And he continues to emphasize it. Do you remember what he says in Romans 1 and verse 16? He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. And why is it that Paul is not ashamed? Well, for us to look at that, to to look at how he is not ashamed, I want us to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. It's a verse that will be familiar to many of you. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. He knows, for I know whom I have believed. You see, Paul here is not talking about a special feeling that he gets. Sometimes it's really easy, isn't it, to to think, well, I don't feel like a Christian at all. You see, he's not talking about a special feeling here or an emotional connection. It's very easy, isn't it, uh, after going to a conference or maybe having some sort of time of fellowship with other believers or maybe going to a camp uh, in the summer and you, you come back and you feel very spiritually refreshed. You feel alive, you feel like the, the best Christian there is. And then the months go by and then you you always feel like you're not a Christian at all. And you wonder, well, what is that? That's not faith. Faith is to know God. For I know whom I have believed. 
It is to be totally convinced. It is to be totally persuaded of Jesus' power to save you. It is to be totally convinced that what the Bible says is true and have a longing and a hunger and a desire to make him known. That's what faith is. It's to be utterly convinced. Hebrews 11 uh, verse 1 tells us that faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. And this kind of faith is not built by God simply granting our wishes the second we ask him. Why is it that God sometimes takes years and years to answer our prayers? It's not because God is slow, as some of us consider slowness, but it is to build our faith and our total trust in his great plan. Not our own plan, his great plan. And you see, it's actually in the waiting where faith begins to develop. A God of immediate gratification requires no faith. It's waiting for an answer from God where faith actually becomes necessary. A God of immediate gratification does not require that. Think about it. If God just gave us everything we want as soon as we ask for it, what would that teach us about God? It would teach us to take advantage of him, to treat him like he's this magical genie in a bottle who just grants our wishes uh, at, any, at any time. It's actually in the waiting things where faith actually begins to develop the trusting God in the silent moments those moments where you feel like God is far from you those moments where you feel like he's not talking to you don't ever assume that silence means that God has forgotten you there is 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament what does that teach us that silence never means the absence of God Silence never means that God is not working. God is still working, he is still moving, and he is still working for our salvation and our ultimate deliverance. So in those times of waiting, we are, tr- we are commanded and told to trust that on the other side of this period of waiting, there is a wonderful, stronger, and deeper faith stored up for us. So allow that faith to work. Never assume automatically that silence equals no, or that silence equals God is ignoring you. In these times, God is still using you to serve him where you are, and is still using you while shaping you in faith to something deeper, to something stronger, to something greater, to something more like Christ. For Paul, he was stuck in jail with no time frame for his release, no guarantee that, that that release would ever even actually happen. But he simply has to wait patiently on the Lord. He embodies what we read earlier in Psalm 40 and verse 1. You can turn there as well if you like. He embodies what we read there in verse, uh, in verse 1 of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my And then the psalmist in verse 4 says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. But you see that in verse 1. Do you see the connection of the result of waiting on God? So often we're tempted to not wait on God and to do things our own way. But let's see the connection uh, and the result of waiting on God. Verse 1 of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. And you could, if you like, put... Loads of dots there to indicate lots and lots of years of waiting patiently on the Lord. 
and he inclined to me. He heard my cry. You see, this is what happens when we wait patiently on the Lord. He hears us. He draws near to us. He comes near to his people. Now, this time of waiting, this time of being stuck, uh, may well have seemed like a bit of a wasted time to Paul. Being stuck in prison may have seemed like a complete, uh, complete pain. But here he is still serving God while under arrest. He's still finding opportunities to serve God while in chains. He is writing. He is encouraging. He's showing the gospel with as many people as he can while in chains. This is not what he would have chosen. This is not what he wanted to do. But he was finding ways to serve God in his current situation. So therefore, there truly is no wasted time when you are simply being obedient to God. Recognising that there really is no perfect place to serve God except the place he has put you right now. Think about it. Without Paul being forced on the sidelines, without him being forced to wait for things, we may never have had the book of Philippians. We may never have had, he may never have had the time to write Philippians and lots of other letters. There is no wasted time when being obedient to God. So are you doing that? Are you making sure that you're not trying to force God's hand in certain situations? There's something you haven't got, so you try and force it. Are you making sure that you're trusting in God's timing? Are you making sure that you're not trying to take matters into your own hands and instead doing what Paul does, which is modelling godly character in the situation he finds himself in right now? While Paul waits, you may even want to note that down, he models godly character. You see, there are multiple ways in which our lives speak Christ. There are multiple ways in which our lives show his glory and his majesty and magnify his name. And so if you think the only measure of living a fruitful life is how many people you give the gospel to, you're going to be really disappointed when you don't get a chance to do that. It is the most important thing. Preaching and speaking the gospel is the most important thing, but it's not the only thing to fruitfulness. You have to exhibit Christ-like behaviours your, in your day-to-day life, waiting patiently for those opportunities to come. And so can I ask you then, what about that frustrating and underperforming colleague that you're constantly scornful of? What about that teacher or, or, uh, or, or teacher or lecturer at your school or your college or your university that you deliberately try and provoke? Some of us like to do that when we were at school. What about that neighbour that you know you mistreat? What about that person you know who you know lives an immoral lifestyle? So instead of trying to get alongside them, you hurl abuse at them and make no effort with them. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do, by the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? Now, in the world we live in, it takes a bold Christian to seek to honour God wherever they've been placed, wherever they've been put. It is hard. doesn't mean forever you'll be in that place. If you're in a place that you don't want to be at the moment, 
It doesn't mean you'll forever be there, but it does mean that you can be content in Christ. So if you're a Christian this morning, you can content. You can be content in all situations, wherever God has placed you. That means you can be a 20-year-old male single student and be content. You can be a married 50-year-old unemployed woman and be content. You can be an 83-year-old retired widow or widower and be content. And actually more than that, Paul actually rejoices in where he is stuck right now, where he is waiting right now. He actually celebrates that. You see that right at the end of verse 20, uh, that he will have all boldness as always so that now also Christ will be magnified. That is the source of his courage. That is his reason for rejoicing. That's why he rejoices in verse 18 at the gospel being preached. He knows nothing is getting in the way of Christ's purpose. Nothing is getting in the way of Christ doing what he needs and must do. Nothing is getting in the way of God's wonderful plan uh, for salvation. Nothing is getting in the way of God's wonderful plan to unite his church to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't the sovereignty of God wonderful, therefore? Charles Spurgeon describes it like this. He says that the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which the child of God rests his head each night, giving perfect peace. Isn't it great to rest in that sovereignty, to lean on that pillow of comfort in the sovereignty of God? Isn't the sovereignty of God wonderful that we can truly say we never know what God is going to do next? In that situation you find yourself in this evening, that is not a certainty that you're going to be there forever. Those people that you love and cherish who, for whatever reason, want nothing to do with you, that is not a certainty forever. You simply do not know what God is going to do next. But what you do know is that it will work out for your ultimate deliverance and your ultimate salvation. That is what gives us courage. This is what enables us to carry on, that Christ will always win. His gospel continues to march on. He continues to lead his people. He continues to shepherd his people and help his people and guide his people. So that in those moments of waiting, in those moments of trial, in those moments of difficulty, when you walk a lonely road of sorrow in this life, you can truly say he knows all about it. And if you don't know him tonight, this is the Christ that is offered to you too. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who softly and tenderly calls you and says, come home. Come to me. In 1555, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were sentenced to be burned at the stake on the streets of Oxford for teaching the doctrine of justification by faith alone. They were sentenced with being burnt at the stake uh, for teaching a a doctrine that we freely teach today, that you are only saved by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is at a time of violent persecution in in England uh, at Protestant believers. And they had a long wait, wait while they were imprisoned. And they weren't sure what would happen, but it turned out that their fate would be to be burned alive in front of a large group of people. A horrible death awaited them. And yet both men walked to their execution with their heads held high. 
And then Latimer famously cries out to Ridley, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day light a candle by God's grace that shall never be put out. And you know, even 500 years later, the light of that candle has still never gone out in this country. It may seem dim at times, it may seem distant, but God is still on the move. And when God's people are bold, when God's people are courageous, when they are faithful, even in times of waiting, even in times of disappointment, even in times of grief, our wonderful king continues to receive glory and continues to march on. He continues to save a whole multitude of people. He continues to draw more and more people to himself. So can I ask you again, would you come to him? Would you come and see that in him he is a king worthy of all praise? Would you submit to him as Lord? Would you recognise him as your saviour? Would you recognise that as Paul writes elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 6, today is the day of salvation. I was reminded this week by by a friend of a story that we heard when we were uh, aged about 16 or 17. And believe it or not, that was just... That was just seven or eight years ago. Um, But it was a story from Bill Bygroves, who is a a pastor in Liverpool. He's actually the chaplain of Liverpool Football Club. And he had been speaking at a young people's meeting at a a church for for teenagers. And uh, he'd spoken to one person in particular about his need to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that night. And they were talking uh, later on. He was outside. This, This young man was outside, age 17, A car mounts the curb, hits him and kills him instantly. Time is short. That day may come sooner than you think. So submit to him as Lord. Recognize him as your savior. Magnify him, exalt him in your life. And that's why I want us to notice thirdly and finally the magnification of Christ. This is seen in verse 20. I shall not be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. This could equally be translated exalted, but magnified is the word that you have there in the Greek. It means to be lifted up. It means that Christ is honoured. Christ is praised. It gives us this, this concept that he is bigger and more glorious and made more glorious by our living for him. You may wonder, well, that's a little bit strange. It's a little bit challenging for us because Christ cannot be made any bigger uh, by us because he's already a wonderful and huge king. And there's two ways in which you can magnify God. And I used this example uh, before at Christmas, but it's a useful one for us to think about. Think about the magnifying glass and the telescope. The magnifying glass, you get it to small things. And you make those small things seem bigger. Well, Christ is already massive. You cannot do that with him. You magnify Christ like a telescope magnifies a star out in the distance. You make these enormous things, these things that are sometimes even bigger than our own solar system, bigger to our esteem. They're made to seem bigger, deeper, more intense, more beautiful. And that is what you do, Christian, in your life. 
when you honour Christ, when you are are obedient to him, when you serve him, when you wait on him, you magnify him and make him seem more beautiful and more attractive. We may look at that night sky and look at those stars and think, aren't they lovely? (laughs) And, And we may well do that. Uh, but it's perhaps the biggest understatement in the whole Bible that you see there in Genesis 1:16, where we see this whole creation account, and then you just see those few words, he also made the stars. Like it was nothing. He also made the stars. These are huge, raging balls of plasma. Huge things. And yet the creator of the world says, I also made the stars. And when you live an obedient, patient life of service to God, that is who you exalt. That is who you magnify. That is who you praise. And Paul highlights two ways in which we might glorify and magnify and exalt Jesus. There's two ways. Firstly, in our life. We've already seen this to a large extent, how we exalt Christ in our life. But you see it there in verse 20. I shall not be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always... So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life. This means that we are to maintain that unashamed and unapologetic faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is not ashamed even of the fact that he's in chains for the gospel and he still seeks to minister it now. Not in the way that he would perhaps like, not in the way that he would probably want to, but he does do it. He says here that Christ will be magnified in my body. And this is an important thing for us to remember, uh, therefore, that we are to look after our bodies. Our body, as we're told elsewhere in Scripture, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul later tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 27, that he disciplines his body. He strikes a, a blow against his body. And so we are to be careful how we glorify and honour God in our exercise and what we eat uh, and how uh, we discipline our body. So that's the first way in which he highlights how we may glorify and honour Jesus. There's a second way, though. And with this, we will begin to close. We glorify and magnify Jesus in our death. Paul is identifying here that there is every chance that he may never be released uh, from this imprisonment that he finds himself in, and that he may in fact die. And he recognises that Christ receives honour and glory in our death. You see, there, there is that time when you, Christian, will receive your promotion to glory. There is a time, Christian, when you will receive a wonderful new life. Have you ever stopped to think what heaven might be like? So often we think of it in superficial terms. We think of uh, the golden streets and little cherub boys playing harps and and all of this sort of thing. Well, that's not what we're told in the Bible. We're told in the Bible that Christ will create a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. A new earth. That means there won't be less in heaven than there is in earth. That means all of those good things, all of those things that we enjoy properly on earth will be there in heaven, but better. Because they'll no longer be stained by sin. They'll no longer be marred by the ugliness of our, of our rebellion against God. But we will be there doing these wonderful things we love, with the people we love, perfectly glorifying God. 
There will still be work in heaven. There will be entertainment in heaven. There will be friends and those we love to spend time with. And it will all be perfect because everything we do will be centered around the praise of the Lamb. And we will be able to join with the angels and the seraphim crying out salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Be praise, glory, wisdom and power. We will be able to cry out in worship, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And we will be there and you will be there with a wondrous welcome home. And there will be rapturous applause and celebration every time a glorified sinner saved by grace walks through those gates of splendor. And receives that wonderful welcome home, you good and faithful servant. So can I ask you just one more time tonight, will you join us? If you're not a Christian tonight, will you join us? Will you come with us on this wonderful journey? Will you come with us in this wonderful wait on God? Will you realise that it is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high? who found their home with God. We can have confidence knowing that the very worst thing that comes our way, the very uh, worst thing in our estimation that comes our way will mean nothing to us but us being ushered into the presence of our Saviour. So be of good courage, Christian. Paul knew this. And as he waited patiently on God, he knew there is a higher throne than all this world has known, where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come and cry out, hear heaven's voices sing their thunderous 